It will be in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, to chapter 9, verse 1, inclusive. So I'll start reading now at uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Amen. Thank you so much, Horace. Uh, if you're not a regular churchgoer, you may be filled with dread to think that someone's now about to preach a sermon. Uh, so just to let you know, I'm, I'm hoping to speak for 20 minutes, um, and that may seem a terribly long time but you're getting off much more lightly than the usual congregation. <laughs> Rudolf Vesely was on the last trainload of Jewish children to escape Prague when Hitler invaded. He was rescued by something called the Kindertransport and re reached Liverpool Street Station here in London in August 1939. He was safe, but both his parents had been killed. So Rudolf became a British citizen and built a life here. Later on, he got involved in charity work through something called the Abbeyfield Society, setting up homes for the elderly. And he served for several years alongside a man called Nicky. Didn't really know much about him. They would just go to board meetings and things, and there would Nicky be, and they would chat. And one day, they got talking about the past, and Nicky said, well, where are you from? And he said, well, actually, I was born in Prague. And Nicky said, oh, really? I used to go to Prague a fair bit. And uh, so Rudolf was curious. He said, well, what were you doing there? And it, he discovered that, Rudolf, uh, that Nicholas Winton, who was sitting next to him, was the, the very man who had organized the kinder transport, who had saved nearly 700 Jewish children, including Rudolf himself. He was sitting next to his savior, and he hadn't realized. 
Sometimes a person turns out to be much more than you thought they were. The scripture passage that Horace just read is taken from the Gospel of Mark. It's a pivotal moment in the book. Up to this point, Jesus has been doing amazing things. He's been performing miracles, teaching in a way that no one's ever heard teaching before, casting out demons, stilling a storm, feeding a multitude, creation miracles. Everyone's been asking, who is this? And no one's been getting the answer. But finally, in this passage, someone finally gets it. Or does he? What we find here is that even those who were closest to Jesus, his disciples, did not fully comprehend him. He turns out to be so much more than we had thought. And today I want to spend our time giving you a view of Jesus Christ. You may think you know him, but he may be much bigger than you realized. Notice three things in this text. The king, the cross, and the call. The king, the cross, and the call. Firstly, the king. Now, as I've said up to this point in Mark's story, Jesus has been doing amazing things. He has this incredible ability to delight, to challenge, and to infuriate. Everyone is asking, who is this? And now finally, Jesus turns and asks a question himself that might sound a little bit needy. Verse 27, who do people say I am? And so the disciples, these close followers, give some answers, and the answers reveal basic confusion. Some people say Elijah, some say John the Baptist. The trouble is both of those were dead. Uh, some aren't going to, are hedging their bets a bit. They say, well, one of the prophets. And Jesus then makes the, the, the question more personal, as Horace revealed in the way he read it. What about you? What about you, Friends. There's no consensus about Jesus, is there? It's the same today. Maybe even more so. Who do people say Jesus is? Some think he's a legend or a myth. Many young people in this country actually think that Jesus is not a historical figure. Some say, well, he did exist. He was a great teacher along the lines of other great teachers in classical history. Some go further. He was a holy man, a spiritual leader. The left have claimed him as a proto-socialist. The right have claimed him as a moral arbiter. No one can agree on who Jesus really is. But then Jesus alters the question and says, who do you say I am? And Peter finally gives the right answer. And if you've got your booklet there on page four, notice what he says, verse 29. You are the Messiah. This is a light bulb moment. Big news because of what it meant. Messiah literally meant the anointed one. In ancient times, they would get some oil and pour it on the head of someone being appointed for special office. And this pouring of oil was a symbol of God's setting them apart and equipping them for the task. It was done with kings, prophets, and priests. But the Messiah, the one with the the, is bigger than all the rest of them. This is the king who was appointed by God not just a local leader or even a, a national leader, but a king who would rule over the whole earth. And not a corrupt or self-serving king, a good king. The Messiah would bring justice. He would judge with equity. He would speak up for the poor and the oppressed. Even more, he's a divine king, one who would bring peace that never ends, one whose reign would last forever, one who would bring about the world we all want. That was the vision of the Messiah. So the implications of this are huge. Jesus is so much greater than any of those options we mentioned. 
It's a massive claim. It's an all or nothing claim. Abraham Kuyper was the president of the Netherlands about 100 years ago. Kuyper was also a Christian theologian. He once said, there is no square inch in the whole of creation over which Jesus Christ does not say, mine. That's the Messiah, the king. To oppose him is to oppose almighty God. He commands our loyalty and love. And friends, if there's even a chance that this is true, you owe it to yourself to, to investigate more, don't you? We have a course called it Christianity Explored. We're going to be running here in a few weeks. It runs for about six weeks on an evening, free course. Come and investigate with us. We'd love to have you. So that's the king. But then there's a twist in the tale because the second point, remember, is the cross. The cross. Peter and his colleagues are glowing now. Wow, finally, we got the right answer. <laughs> They're expecting something glorious. He's the Messiah. Right, it's going to happen. They think uh, strength, power, domination, the Roman oppressors crushed, victory, triumph. And they're going to be part of it. And Jesus then starts to surprise them. And the first thing he does is say, shh, don't tell anyone about this. Verse 30, shh, don't tell. Because there's quite a lot of comprehension that needs to happen before Jesus will reveal what he's come to do. He's not going to be the Messiah that anyone thought. They have to understand what it means. Here it is, verses 31 and 32. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's a messianic title, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. This is incomprehensible. What Jesus is saying is, for me to be the Messiah means rejection from all the people you think matter, and death, which to their mind signals defeat. And all of this refers to the cross. So to the disciples, this looks insane. And Peter is having none of it. Look at verse 32. Interesting this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Having just declared that Jesus is the king of the world, he decides to tell him off. That's how provocative Jesus' words were. We can't understand the shock, you know. Peter just didn't have a category for what Jesus said because Peter believed in a glory story. A glory story. He's a bit like the young football fan who chooses a team because they're the team that wins everything as many of us do in childhood. But when the team starts losing, when the team becomes embarrassing to watch, and when the team gets relegated, the fans with the glory story desert. They go and support Man City instead. <laughs> so Peter decides to have words with Jesus. Not a good idea, is it? Look at what happens next. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You know it's a bad day at the office when the Son of God calls you Satan. What does Jesus mean by this severe reprimand? It's that by insisting on the glory story, 
Peter is actually doing the devil's work. The path of power and glory seems right to this world and to Jesus' enemies, but it is utterly mistaken. So Jesus' reaction is fierce, but it shows how important it is that he goes to the cross. And I want to reveal, just zone in, highlight one little word in this passage that is really something. It's in verse 31, and it's the word must. This could be the most important word you've ever heard. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed. There's no other way. If there had been, God would have taken it. The Messiah must die. He cannot bring in the world we all want without suffering and rejection. He indicates that he is planning to die, that he's doing it voluntarily. This little word must actually flies in the face of popular conceptions of Jesus even today. Modern people find it distasteful, the idea that God must punish sin. So Jesus not only contradicts popular views then, but now as well. This little word destroys many contemporary theories of Jesus' death. People say, oh, you know, Jesus' death, it's it's an example of self-sacrifice. It demonstrates God's love to us. God isn't really angry at sin. He didn't need a sacrifice for sin. He just really loves and accepts us all. But Jesus is saying, I must die, indicating that this death is necessary. It is a payment for our sin and failure that we cannot be saved otherwise. To restore the world, to bring in the kingdom, to forgive sins, he must die. There is no other way. Isn't it striking how Jesus Christ is from different other kings? You know, in the ancient world, pharaohs would build huge statues of themselves. Pyramids dedicated to themselves. Alexander the Great, the clues in the name. Alexander the Great built a city called Alexandria after himself. Even Donald Trump, when entering the White House, swapped the red curtains out and replaced them with gold ones. And yet, Jesus Christ, when he comes to the world he has made, offers his hands and says, put nails in them. Take my body and hang me on a cross with no dignity at all so that I can suffer and die. And in this way, I will give you back your dignity and your very lives. He is extraordinary. There is no one else like Jesus. Amen? So if Jesus is the king with a cross, what does that mean for us? We thought about the king, we thought about the cross. Third point, finally, it's the call, and we don't have to wait long for the answer. Look at verses 34 again to 38. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Wow, that's not what we wanted to hear, is it? We learned that to follow Jesus is actually costly, To follow him, we too must choose the cross. And the people who heard this would have shuddered, you know. They would have shuddered because they knew what crucifixion meant. It was horrific. It was barbaric. It was the cruelest way you could kill someone. The Romans had invented the most cruel method of execution that was known in the world. It induced extraordinary physical agony. 
and it could last for days. But just as bad, and maybe even worse for some, was the humiliation. Those crucified were forced to carry their cross through the streets so people could see them. When they were hung on the cross, a sign was put above their heads, mocking them. They were stripped naked and their dignity was taken away. They were shamed comprehensively in an honor and shame culture. It was designed to destroy them. It was the ultimate deterrent against opposing Rome. So here, Jesus is calling his followers to a death march. For Jesus, the Christian life is not to be defined by the glory story, but by self-denial. The Christian life is to be characterized by a willingness to surrender our own desires and put other people first. The Christian life is to be characterized by being willing to sacrifice our comfort, needs, resources, time for the sake of others. The willingness to suffer shame on account of Jesus. And even for some, a willingness to die for him, as hundreds of thousands of Christians have found in the last two millennia. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian pastor and theologian who opposed Hitler. He actually was part of a plot to assassinate him, but he was captured and executed during the Second World War. Bonhoeffer wrote very movingly on this passage, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ's suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments to this world. As we embark on discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise happy life. It meets us at the beginning. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now there's a paradox here. I don't know, I quite know how to explain it. Being a Christian is wonderful, fulfilling. It is full of joy. Ask, ask a Christian. But there's another dynamic at play all the time, woven in with it, woven into our story. And in some ways, maybe we can't have the fulfillment and the joy and the wonder without this too. It's the way of the cross, suffering for Jesus. Being a Christian is costly. And I want to say that to you if you're a skeptical person, an inquirer. We're so glad you're here. We're glad you're here. and you, We love your questions. I, want to, I don't want to be had up by trading standards. I want to tell you how it is. Becoming a Christian means giving up self. Now, those of you who are followers of Jesus... Do you view your Christian life as carrying your cross? We can easily forget this. It's the essence of it. It's not an option. The cross has to be more than a necklace or a logo. The way of Jesus is the way of sacrifice. He can never ask too much of us. And yet, it is so worth it. Look at verses 35 to 37. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? 
Jesus shows us here that there's a futility in living life for yourself. You actually just get smaller and smaller. According to Jesus, this world is broken and it's destined to end. It will be renewed and replaced by the world to come. This world is not all there is. There's a far more glorious future. Therefore, to put all your hopes in this world is to invest all your money in a bank that's going to go bust. It's to try and plant a fruit tree in the desert. It will come to nothing in time. If you put all your chips on the table for this world and don't know the king who created it, you will lose everything. You won't gain the life you truly want. Look at verse 36. What a question. Verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? That is a question we must all face, friends. Better to face it now. History is so full of examples of this. Here's a contemporary one. Jim Carrey. Celebrity, Hollywood actor, multimillionaire, very successful, said this. And it's funny coming from a comedian. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. And he'd done it. Jesus shows us this paradox. The way up is the way down. The way to glory, to the world we all want, is the way of the cross. And he calls us to do something, nothing less than he did himself, but to follow in his footsteps. But to know this king, this one who has loved us so much that he gave himself for us, makes it all worth it. Doesn't it? That's the call. So we know the king. We know his cross. Now we've heard the call. Elizabeth Elliot was a, a missionary to the Alka people in Ecuador, an Indian native people, and with her husband Jim and a team of others, they sought to reach these people with the news of the love of Jesus. And while they were building contact, the Alka uh, were threatened and they killed some of that party, including her husband Jim, who was speared to death. And Elizabeth stayed. She stayed, she built contact, she learned the language, she became part of them, and she even met her husband's killers and reconciled with them. And later on, she published some extracts from her husband's journal, and this is what Jim Elliot wrote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Will you follow the king, King's Church? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we uh, need to hear your voice again. We're, it, it gets crowded out by all the things in our lives and all the, the fun things and all the distraction and all the voices. Pray now as we draw this meeting to a close that there would be the still small voice that comes from you that will speak to every heart and draw us to know you. Amen. <laughs>